0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcasts on the DSR network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.
2: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember.com and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you.
1: 9,
3: 12, 10, 28, 2, This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you from New York City, where. It's not spring. It was spring last week. It isn't anymore. It's cold and nasty, and I'm not happy about it. We are joined today by a terrific group, including Rosa Brooks, who holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Public Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she's also the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes, which we like to emphasize because (laughs) all the centers and institutes out there in our audience. How are you today, Rosa?
4: I'm fine, David. <laughs> Clearly, nothing I do is going to get you to not say that.
3: <laughs> uh, no, no, I'll, I won't stop. It's what I'm, I'm told. I'm told to read it. It's what it says. <laughs> and we are joined by a Peter W. Singer. Peter's a strategist at the New America Foundation mm-hmm. and founder and managing partner at Useful Fiction LLC, which could be the name of many media organizations in America, but
1: is Peter's. How are you today, Peter? I'm doing fine. And it's not media. We actually have to work for a living.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. And we are joined by Michael Weiss. Michael, as you know, is news director at New Lines Magazine and the co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and also a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. And Michael returned, I guess, just over a week ago from Ukraine. Is that it? About a week ago, Michael?
0: Yeah, from, I think, April 4th to April 9th, I was there.
3: Well, I think we want to draw on that. What I would like to do, you know, we're much farther into this, uh, this crisis than anybody thought it would get to be in terms of duration. And it has confounded a lot of expectations, confirmed some expectations and given us a glimpse into the way wars are fought today that has surprised many people, not some people, not people who think about the future of these things, as you guys do. And so I thought, let's see what lessons we can draw now, particularly as we're at the beginning of a new phase in this conflict, which is to say this, what has been coined the battle for the Donbass. And, you know, let me start with you, Michael, since you just got back with this focus that, I, that I'd like to have on, on sort of lessons. What did you, you've been going there for a while, right? I mean, you, you, yep. you, 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 At you
0: least know. once or twice a year for the last eight years, since the, the war started in 2014, we forget it wasn't just an invasion two months ago. And yeah, I've been going quite a lot in the last few months. I did a week prior to the invasion or this reinvasion when everyone in Ukraine thought, Yeah, you know, we can expect to see something, maybe provocations in Kyiv or some escalation in Donbass, but nobody really anticipated a full-on attempted conquest of the country, even though, as we know, and we've discussed Western intelligence, particularly the United States and the UK had very good granular intelligence suggesting such a thing was in the offing. So it was strange. The Ukrainians, they were wrong, but for the right reason, if that makes sense. The reason they didn't think that Putin would be as foolhardy to do something like what he's done is exactly what we've seen transpire. They were far more confident, self-assured of their own. It's premature to say victory. There's still, as as we're about to discuss, this, this kind of escalation that is taking place in Donbass, but far more assured of their capabilities than I think anybody in the West was. And they have indeed confounded a lot of expectations. The Kremlin will tell you that it was always the strategic plan to just distract them in Kyiv and and plan for this, you know, sort of larger scale occupation in the east, creating a land bridge from Russian Federation territory to occupied Crimea, which will run through Mariupol, which still hasn't fallen, even though it was thought to have, was meant to have fallen, you know, many, many weeks ago. It's still contested. But the fact of the matter is, no, Putin was, was engaged in regime change and that failed, or at least it failed in the short term. And it's also the fact of the matter that the Russians didn't withdraw of their own accord. They were pushed out of Kyiv Oblast. And I've seen the The evidence of that on my trip, I've seen just a kind of a a tank armored personnel carrier graveyard all over Kiev Oblast outside of the capital city, which remains and and throughout the war had remained unmolested by any kind of Russian ground assault. They couldn't get in. But certainly in the suburbs, there's a different story to be told. So I traveled to a, a suburb called Borodienka, which is in a good day. It takes about 30 minutes in fair traffic to get from there to the capital city. And it's known as a commuter suburb. It took me three hours. And that's not just because of interdicted infrastructure and and road systems that the Russians blasted out. It's also, there were a lot of uh, people returning to Kyiv who had fled westward. Either they were internally displaced or they left the country and they were coming back. In fact, I hitchhiked with a Ukrainian woman whose family lives in Germany now. She was going back to Kyiv to collect some belongings and then go back to Germany. And, you know, Borodenka, we've all seen the um, rather horrifying images from Bucha, where summary executions had taken place and corpses were literally lining the streets as Ukrainian defenders were rolling in. Borodienka is a different story. There weren't corpses scattered in the streets because they were buried under the rubble of apartment blocks that the Russians destroyed with a series of airstrikes in early March. So literally buried people alive as they killed them. And in a weird way, it was more menacing for that fact, because when I was there, the emergency services were lifting tons of steel and concrete up looking for the bodies. And I think they've recovered 30 or 40 of them by now, but they're by no means done. So it was a a strange trip on the one hand, exhilarating because the Ukrainians, I've never seen such high morale, such humor, such resiliency and such dogged optimism that, you know, this is their war to win. But harrowing and horrifying, because look at the carnage. I mean, the, the, the you know, the, the Russians have not engaged militarily so much as they've taken out their ire and their spleen and their vindictiveness on the civilian population.
3: Thanks. Well, now we'll come. We'll come back to it. thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for the overview. And by the way, on the on the last point, you know, I got an email today. You know, as as we all do, we get these kind of email pushes from different PR agencies. And I got one on behalf of of a group in Ukraine that was a project that described itself as promoting bravery as Ukraine's chief cultural export. And it was, I I think it was called Brave Ukraine. And there are billboards up in lots of countries now across Europe talking about it. Peter, you've written about this from a, 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 a somewhat different perspective. You know, you're noted as an expert in the future of war and on how technology is changing things what has struck you about how technology has been used in this war
1: so i have to begin with the caveat at the end of the day no matter the technology whether it's you know the very first person to pick up a stone and use that in conflict to now drones in conflict what makes it war is that human element. So, you know, you asked a question about technology, I'm going to answer that technology side, but I'm I'm beginning by saying, don't forget the human. I think we've seen a couple of um, aspects of technology that if we imagine future histories being written about this, that they will remark upon the Ukraine war, not just the, the battles of the last couple of days, but kind of the, historic moments. Um, there's a couple of things that are significant. One is on the cyber side, we have seen, um, it's interesting, there's a narrative that cyber didn't matter, uh, that um, you know people have been expecting cyber Pearl Harbor to hit Ukraine, and that didn't happen, and so therefore cyber doesn't matter. However, if you pull back at it, there's been a couple of significant cyber events. One is, and this is a pattern and it goes to what Michael was saying, there was a a Russian plan, didn't work out the way they wanted, but um, their plan was a pretty aggressive uh, cyber action in terms of not just stealing information, defacing websites or the like, but trying to use cyber to cause kinetic damage, that is physical damage they were thwarted. I mean, there's been, um, gosh, I'd have to go back and count it, but I think there's been like four to six different, um, they call them wiper attacks. Just basically, you're trying to turn a computer into a brick and use that to shut down, for example, a power grid or the like. Now, fitting within this overall narrative, that's what Russia tried to do, wasn't successful. On the flip, the cyber activists, the IT army of Ukraine, Actually, fought back in a way that um, did succeed. So, we saw in this conflict the very first attack on the Internet of Things in warfare. So, if the Internet, you know, used for communications, Internet of Things is how we use it for operations. And it took place actually not in Ukraine, but in Moscow. Essentially, someone went after the electric car charging stations. Um, they defaced them on the screen. It said, Putin is a dickhead. But more important than that is that they were broken. If you had an electric car, good luck, you couldn't charge them. So someone used cyber means to cause physical change in the world, shutdown systems. And so it was sort of an interesting marker moment. The other thing is the information operation side of it. And, and sorry, I should be clear about this. It's a funny example, but it's an example of something that we're going to see a lot more in warfare, going after physical objects, physical damage. So The fact that it happened um, with a Putin as a dickhead story is sort of great for history. Second, the information operations. Very similar um, story in that for years and years, Russia was the most feared information warrior. They hacked elections in over 30 different nations from the U.S. to targeting Spain, Brexit, you name it. And yet when it came to arguably their most important um, operation of all, they flailed. They failed. They were hoping to um, exploit and um, further create division within Ukraine. As Michael said, you know, this was part of the plan was a very rapid seizure of, a, of the capital city. In fact, they even, you know, part of why they did so poorly on the ground militarily is that they had riot police at the front of their convoys because they were expecting that's what they're going to be dealing with, not, um, you know, anti-tank uh, weapons and the like. But um, instead, the Ukrainians turned the table, and um, you know, Zelensky became um, a global icon to there's arguably no more popular cause in the world right now than Ukraine. That has very real impact in that that information war side is part and parcel of why Ukraine has been able to not just stay in the fight physically but do so well in it. It's part of why there've been um, the thousands of anti-tank and anti-air weapons rushed to Ukraine. It's part of why we've seen financial sanctions beyond what um, certainly Russia expected, but even the Biden administration thought they could put together. It's why we've seen um, over 400 major global corporations suspend or cease or pull out operations from Russia. I mean, a different way of putting it is if Germany's sending weapons and Switzerland's joining in sanctions you've really lost in this space right another technology story that i think matters is robotics drones we've you know they've been used in war particularly by the united states primarily they played a role in counterinsurgency counterterrorism going after you know individual human targets there was this back and forth as to well but they won't really matter in conventional war and yet they have played a huge role for Ukraine in this conflict. Um, They both have been carrying out their own strikes. My guess is uh, some number of the tanks that Michael saw were once hit by Ukrainian drones, or if not directly hit by them, they've been doing uh, much of the targeting for Ukrainian forces, artillery and the like. And what's been really interesting, and it goes back to this discussion on cyber, is it's not just about the technology, it's who behind it. So Ukraine's cyber efforts have been both their, their government, but also this you know, online network of volunteers. The same thing on the drone side. Much of the um, targeting is a network of civilian volunteers flying small civilian drones and yet using them to help Ukrainian cannon pinpoint and the like. So those are some of the um, technology stories that have come out of this that I think are notable and that you know, will be marker moments for history.
3: But we will pick up on, on some of that. I, I'm sure, knowing Rosa, that the thing that has struck her is that this this conflict has, in fact, spawned the most colorful language of recent conflicts. And Putin is a dickhead is certainly an example of that. Of course, Putin is a dickhead. And so that seems to be just sort of truth in advertising. But postage stamps of soldiers are flipping off the Russian Navy and, and so many other examples. But perhaps, Rosa, you want to go deeper and talk about things that have surprised you or that you think are early lessons for this war, perhaps lessons for U.S. policymakers.
4: So everything has surprised me and continues to surprise me. And, 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 and the things that surprise me, I think, point to some of the lessons for, for the U.S. And, you know, Michael's a Ukraine watcher and may not have been surprised, but I think for those of us who consider ourselves generally knowledgeable about foreign policy, but not necessarily Ukraine experts, And Russia experts, the fact that the fact that Putin invaded was a surprise, obviously. The fact that the Ukrainians did so well and the Russians have done so badly surprised everybody. The fact that Putin seems willing to brandish the threat of nuclear weapons use surprised me. I mean, all of these things are surprising, by which I don't mean to say that they were they were unthinkable, you know, that they're all things that we had thought of and contemplated. But I think I think most of us would have said that they were extraordinarily unlikely. Possible, but very, very unlikely. And I think that the everything that has happened to me illustrates that the, you know, so-called post-World War II order, you know, the UN Charter world was always shakier than we assume, you know, that even those of us who intellectually knew it was shaky and argued that it was shaky and argued that it was, you know, one one underground tremor away from collapse. I think, you know, it's one thing to know that intellectually, and another thing to sort of watch it happen and see how rapidly norms that seemed reasonably robust can decay because obviously, you know we're now seeing a what we thought of as still a superpower, albeit a waning and weakened superpower having violated you know very clear u n charter prohibitions with virtually no support from other countries. um we we see we see the resurgence of serious nuclear threats serious enough that the cia director says yeah i'm worried about this we see the object lessons that we're getting in something else that we all knew but that you don't always quite get in your bones until it happens you know the interconnectedness of the global economy we you know talk about this all the time but the the way the the rapidity with which the sanctions have damaged russia's economy but also had had knock-on effects for the entire world and will continue probably even worsening in terms of food supplies, et cetera. You know, all of these things, I, I think, to me, a highlight that we suck at making predictions, you know, and, and this is something we've had this conversation before at other times when we've been surprised and, and including most, perhaps most notably for our purposes, when the Soviet Union collapsed, right? We had most of the pundits, most of the experts saying, well, yeah, I mean, it could, but that's very unlikely. And, you know, same with the Arab Spring, you can think of a zillion examples where things that seemed extraordinarily unlikely to the experts happened. So I, I think for us all, this should be, number one, a lesson in modesty, a lesson in, in, you know, things that we think are really clear and probabilities that we think are really clear. We, we get it wrong very often, often enough on things that are big enough that we, we need to take that seriously. Um, and that has implications for U.S. government, strategic planning and long-term planning. Um, I think it also reminds us that the project of thinking about what replaces that that post-World War II so-called order is, is an urgent one. I think it's, again, one that everybody always talks about. I and mean, Peter, you and I have been in many conversations where we've talked about that and we all kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, we really need to get on that. Yeah, yeah. And we know that that past re, major reshufflings of the international order, international law norm structures have essentially been driven by catastrophe. Now we've got our catastrophe and it could get more, our, our catastrophe could get worse. So the question becomes, is this going to be enough to, whenever this is over, if it's over, push the world to do something more serious than it's done so far?
3: By the way, I'd like to ask our producers to record the part that Rosa said, now we have our catastrophe and our catastrophe could get worse. And we could just <laughs> I know, I said it could get
4: more catastrophic. Yeah, our catastrophe could become more catastrophic. A catastrophic, exactly. catastrophic. But I'd
3: like to be able to use that in each episode. And <laughs> because we, we always come, we come back to that.
4: I should Things say, could by also the, get more catastrophic.
3: Exactly. I, I should say, by the way, that that's sometimes people are pretty good at predictions. Peter, your novels are pretty good at predicting. And uh, the the project that you did, Rosa, on the future of war, uh, a number of the things that Peter was talking about are things you talked about in the course of that project. So I think we've gotten some of this right, but let's try to apply some of these lessons. We've got about 10 minutes before we go to our break, but let's let's apply some of these lessons in and uh, in, in around looking at what's coming in this battle for boss. And uh, uh, Michael, you, you, you've been there, you know what's going on. It looks like part of the battle for Mariupol has sort of gone underground at this metallurgical factory where there are underground tunnels and a lot of the resistance that's putting itself in there. And of course, by the way, one final point before we get into this, you know, at the beginning of this war, when you would talk to experts, when we talked to experts here, they said, well, the most likely thing is that the Russians go for this land bridge between the parts of eastern Ukraine they control in Donbass and Luhansk and, and Crimea. And now it looks like that's what's happening, right? Mariupol's right dead center in the middle of that. And so that prediction seems to be bearing out. Based on what we've seen so far, how does that color your view of where we're going, Michael?
0: Yeah. So, look, um, I, I mean, I'm a journalist and I try not to make predictions because I, I generally think that that's it's a, it's a good way to um, to lose one's credibility when they don't pan out. So I try to just stick to the here and now. And I, by the way, I mean, I, I wouldn't have if you asked my opinion, would Ukraine have have fared as well as it did? I, I was deeply conflicted because Ukrainians were telling me, yeah, we'll be fine. And everyone else in the West was saying, no, they won't. So, I, you know, I, I just reported. it. And I'm glad I did and got that on the record. As far as where things are headed now, I mean, you know, I will say that there is a, a greater sense of urgency and concern. I spoke just today with Ukraine's deputy defense minister, uh, Volodymyr uh, Gavrilov, who uh, still thinks they're going to win and still thinks that they have the capability. They're deeply desirous of NATO munitions. So you, you mentioned, somebody mentioned the 155 millimeter artillery systems, they want that now, because it's very hard for them to get a, their hands on Soviet made kit, or at least the ammunition to, to resupply. So 152 millimeter stuff is, is almost, I mean, it's very scarce. And, and so they're, they're basically saying, if you give us Western armaments, we will be able to use them very quickly. And you know, there, there is a, a degree of ingenuity and creativity on their part where they can adapt a lot faster than people have given them credit for. I mean, nobody, I think, certainly not myself, I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear everyone else's view, had uh, the sinking of the Moscow on their bingo card for this war. You know, this is the flagship cruiser of the Black Sea Fleet. And from what I've been told, the way in which the Ukrainians went about this was, was incredibly artful and almost ingenious. Uh, Indiana Jones was a, a term that was used on this call that I had today. So we'll, 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 I'm sure that'll be reported in, in due course. But look, the Donbass is a a different kettle of fish from Kyiv. The Russians have been entrenched there for eight years. They have direct supply lines from Russian Federation territory. So they're not, you know, having to move BTGs from Belarus and so on. The question is, will Ukrainians be able to mount a more conventional defensive kind of action in the east? In Kyiv, you know, what they were really good at is mobile defense. So they would allow the Russians to kind of draw in stretch their supply and logistics lines. And the Ukrainians would go on behind enemy lines and blow up their fuel tanks, or, you know, get them stuck in the mud, do things that made it very hard for the the Russians to move forward. Donbass is going to be more difficult. They're looking for long-range fires. You know, I mentioned artillery systems. We are giving them, I think, MI-17 attack helicopters, things that we know that they'll be able to press the fight to the Russians. In terms of though, like leaving aside the on-paper order of battle stuff, right, we, we kind of get obsessed with how many BTGs have the Russians deployed there and all that. Fundamentally, you know, Putin did not wake up after a fortnight of, after having withdrawn from Kyiv with a miraculously transformed army, right? The, the Russian military is still going to be beset by all of the problems we've seen thus far. Low morale, combat ineffectiveness, still logistical and supply line problems, even if they're just geographically more amenable to the Russian side of things. And the Ukrainians are still going to be very creative. They're going to come up with ways to, to interdict Russian supply lines. We've already seen, although they don't confirm it themselves for obvious reasons, Ukraine is striking inside Russian Federation territory. There have been reports of them blowing up fuel depots in Belgorod. There was a whole railway bridge that just suddenly blew up. We don't know how that happened, but I have my guesses. Um, so I'm not saying it's it's going to be easy for the Ukrainians, and, and I don't think anybody thinks that. Least of all, they themselves. But I can't really discount that they might actually do a lot more than we would be inclined to give them credit for. In other words, is Putin going to achieve whatever it is his strategic objective is by now? There's been this idea that May 9th Victory Day, you know, which has very heavy symbolism in Russia, as as you know, the defeat of Nazism is sort of the deadline he's imposed on his general staff for some kind of victory to be dressed up, you know, if that's a land bridge or if it's more of taking Lugansk and Donetsk, I don't know. But the enemy gets a vote here. Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting just because Putin has said, here's a cessation of all major hostilities. They're going to press ahead. And there is a belief that they can actually reclaim some of the territory that was not just taken in this latest invasion, but that had been taken and occupied in in 2014. And that's another reason they're looking for, they have a huge shopping list of offensive weaponry from the West. And one of the things I think that's working in their favor is, you know, forget the moral solidarity, which everybody seems to have. Russia is deeply isolated. We talked about the loss of the information war. I've been talking to sources inside Russia and people who are very well connected to the security organs there. Andrei Soldatov, a good friend of mine and one of the foremost journalists of Russian military security apparatus told me he's got guys in the GRU who have admitted that they have completely lost the narrative, right? Nobody really supports Russia except a handful of Magalan cranks and far leftists in the United States and, you know, some agents of influence scattered around Europe, but they they don't have the, the momentum. Nothing succeeds like success. The fact that Ukraine has done so well thus far is making Western countries more inclined to give them more support. And I can tell you, look, and I've confirmed this, not a single Western arms shipment has been interdicted by Russia. And that we're not talking about striking near Poland, where there's a risk of miscalculation and some rocket or cruise missile hitting Poland and possibly triggering Article 5. You've got hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of terrain from Lviv to Kiev, and it's going to be even farther stretched to get stuff to Donbass. So far, and whether this is just bad Russian intel, or just, again, Ukrainian creativity, nothing's been taken out. And that includes Bayraktar TB2 Turkish drones, which have been coming into the country since the beginning of the war. It includes, I think, howitzers are now en route. Switchblade UAVs from the United States, both 300 and 600s, are in Ukraine now, I've confirmed today. All of these things have somehow wound up in the hands of the Ukrainian armed forces, and the Russians haven't destroyed them. So let's see. Again, I don't make any long-term predictions here, but so far, the, the situation has been encouraging. If you're inclined to say that you know, the Ukrainians ought to
3: win this thing. This is the time we normally take a break and we're going to take a brief break now say goodbye to the folks who are joining us as part of the general public and say, if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast and, and all of all of our podcasts, the best thing to do is to become a member. And you can do that by going to the dsrnetwork.com and clicking on membership. And it's real inexpensive and it helps us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, and we'd be grateful if you do it. Rosa mentioned earlier the uh, discussion of uh, whether the Russians will use uh, nuclear weapons, which uh, came up last uh, Thursday at Georgia Institute of Technology with CIA Director Bill Burns mentioning it. The next day, President Zelensky mentioned it. We're going to devote our Thursday podcast to a discussion about that. I wrote a column about it, interviewing a bunch of uh, senior U.S. officials and a bunch of experts appeared today in the Daily Beast and we're going to we're going to explore some of those issues on Thursday's podcast. So join us again for that. And for those of you who remember, stand by. We're going to start again in one moment.